Um, but today, um, I'm just filling in for Emilio, and we're going to take uh, a little break from uh, biblical theology, although we will see some biblical theology in this text. Uh, this uh, message, message of this, le- this, uh, this lesson is the high Christology of Paul. And so I figured we just might ask the question, what is Christology? Anybody? The study of Christ, yeah, yeah, specifically his preeminence. I think all of that is wrapped up in in the Christology of Christ. So that's that's true. Um, but so we have a we have a, a study of soteriology, which is like Christ and how he procures salvation, applies salvation. But Christology in its in its in its uh, in its basically how we can specifically define it is the person of Christ, defining who he is um, as he is God in flesh. And dwelt among us. And so in this text, right, we're going to be speaking about Pauline Christology. This is Paul's use and Paul's understanding of who Christ was and is. And so that's what we'll be going through today. We'll be in the passage of Colossians 1, if you want to turn there. Colossians 1. And I'm going to start reading for us. Really, we'll start at verse 12. The main text will be at verse 15. How verse... how? That's triumphant. That is triumphant. That's right. That was the power of God. That wasn't me. I was not... That was not me. Brady, how are you, brother? Praise God. Amen. Good to see you. Wonderful. I wish I always had that voice. I need that street preaching. Right, brother? Amen. Amen. Um, so verse 11 ends joyously. And that, that little word should be attached to verse 12, in my humble opinion, when you read the Greek. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Verse 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And so this is just kind of what precedes our text. And this is the main text, starting at verse 15, going to verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself." Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Amen. So getting into this text, I just wanted to read a small excerpt of Matthew Henry. It's just kind of an informative uh, passage I just figured I'd quote and brought it with me. He says that Colossae was was considerable city of Phrygia and probably not far from Laodicea or Hierapolis. And we find mentioned together in uh, in chapter... Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, It is now buried in ruins, and the memory of it chiefly preserved in this epistle. The design of the epistle is to warn them of the danger of the Jewish zealots 
who pressed the necessity of observing the ceremonial law and to fortify them against the mixture of the Gentile philosophy with their Christian principles. And so this is kind of what you see, just for a little bit of background for you as we go into this text, not so blindly, um, but our focus is not necessarily uh, the text altogether, but the Pauline Christology and uh, Paul's understanding of who Christ was and who Christ is. And so that's what we're going to get through. So what we do see here in verses 12 through 14 is the, the redeeming work of God, and we see a shift in the passage from verses uh, verses 12 to verse 14. And so what we can say is in this passage, we can conclude that for those who are in Christ, um, we have been redeemed for and delivered from the power and domain of darkness, is what he says in verse 13. 1 John 1, 6, we have been freed from the prince of darkness, Ephesians 6, 12 and 16. And as we all know, we have been delivered from ourselves, as Paul puts it so eloquently in Ephesians 5, 8. For we were all at one time formerly darkness. So we were delivered from ourselves. And so beginning with verse 12, what we will see is this, is that it's a complete sentence from verses 12 to 16. Um, sometimes the best way to translate that in English is to kind of break it up and, and for you to understand the point of each, uh, each line of the text. Um, but in the Greek, it's really just one ongoing text that introduces Paul's high Christology. So verse 12 begins, giving thanks to the Father. So the, so the Father is, in this, in this, uh, he is the, he is, uh, he is the object of this sentence at, right here at the beginning. And then it says, for what? And so verses 12 through 13, they express, um, they express the shift in this text. We give thanks to the Father. And it's so, giving thanks to the Father, we would say that and he is speaking about including them, them being the Gentiles. And so he says that he has given thanks to the Father who has qualified us Right. This is basically the Gentiles to share in the inheritance of the saints. Um, and, he, and he goes on for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we see that the, the passage begins with the focus on the father and shifts to the work of the son. And this right here is basically what you're seeing is the messianic son, the son that is coming into history, stepping into history and procuring salvation. And he calls him the father. He calls him the father. He is the son of his love is really how you would transfer this Greek text um, and what he has done and the fact that he has created all things. And so when you get to the next verse, verse 15, where we are today, you're, you're saying um, we're basically being led from verses 12 to 14 that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's the transfer in whom we have redemption. So this is his son he's speaking about in time. And then verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Just speaking about the preeminence of the son, not just specifically in time, but in eternity. So you have Christ on earth, and in a sense, what's, what was planned in eternity is being executed on earth. And that is what you see here. You see the shift being giving thanks to the Father, all the way from 13, 14, and 15, exalting the Son. And you see, this is Paul's Christology, is the equality of the Son with the Father. Not just the Father being, you know, so this is a Trinitarian passage. This is Paul's Christology as we know it. And so getting into Colossians 1, 15 through 20, a lot of, um, a lot of theologians have called this a hymn. 
um, just because of the grammatical makeup within the Greek and the and the flow of it in the Greek is really is really beautiful. I'm still kind of studying it. Um, so what we will see is this in the passage that we're going to go through, Colossians one fifteen through twenty. In verses 15 through 17, you'll see the son's relationship to creation. And then echoed and reflected in a, in a different sense, but a different object of the son's relationship, verses 18 through 20, is the son's relationship to the church. And so beginning with verse 15, we'll go into here, brothers and sisters. He is the image of the invisible God. And I just how this, this is the relate, his relationship to the father and th- the firstborn of all creation. This is the son's relationship to creation. So the, so the author starts in eternity past in time, right? He is the seed of David. This is a redeeming messianic son, as we previously mentioned. And so who is this messianic son that we see that's in, in time and he's redeeming his people? This is no other than the preexistent son of God, the one who was sent into the world by the father. And so you'll notice in this uh, in the beginning that he is the image of the invisible God. And so you'll you'll notice that this is his distinguishing feature uh, from those who are merely made in God's likeness or those who are made in the image of God. Right. He is the image of God. That's who Christ is. And so what are some passages, brethren, where we can see um, things like this that express the image of Jesus Christ as the image of God, the divine image bearer of God. Where else do we see Christ, um, his deity, right? What are some of these passages that might express this? I don't know where the one is, but it says, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, That's okay. Amen. That's one. Yeah. No, that's great. That's in, that's in John, John 14, 9. John 14, 9. Well, what were you going to say, brother? Same, Same passage. Seven. Amen. Amen. Which, which one you said that was? John 14, 7. 14, 7. Okay. Romans 9, 5. Romans 9, 5. Amen. That's uh, John 1, 1. Amen. And, you know, if you want to turn with me, you'll see this. And actually, I can go there. Um, but jo- uh, Hebrews 1, 3 expresses this really incredibly. Hebrews 1, 3. Who can read that for me? Anybody there? K-Dub, you got me? Mm. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So I have the NESB. So what basically he just said, he is the radiance of his glory. This is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact representation of of his nature. And this is what we're trying to say when we define Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. So this word, the Greek word is ekon, this word image in Greek. Where do we hear this language in the Bible? What are you, Stephen, what do you got? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you would see, the, so, the, so Christ is the perfection of those who are made in the likeness of the image of God or in the image of God. Christ is the image of God. And, um, that's, that's where we see it. So Adam was made in the image of God, but Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the true image bearer of God. 
And uh, Gordon Fee, in one of his commentaries, he says that he alone perfectly bears the image of God, even in his incarnation. He perfectly bears the incarnation of God. He, he, there's, this, there's another verse that basically says the same thing, and I'm going to go there for you. It's 2 Corinthians 4.3. And it's really a remarkable text. And you, I mean, all these texts, you really see that Paul has a very high Christology. So I'll go ahead and read this for you. Second Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3 through 6. It says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Isn't that incredible? who is the image of God. And then he goes on, he says this, for we do not preach ourselves, but but Jesus, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the invisible he is, the, he is the image of the invisible God. And then we go on, we have this other word in the text here, prototokos. So not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he is the firstborn of all creation. And this is really what this resembles and what this uh, indicates is the son's relation to creation. So we just saw how the son perfectly reflects the father. And now we're going to see how the son is in relationship to the son or how that relationship stands and you have this word here, it's prototokos, or firstborn. And this is used in a couple of places. And um, does anybody know where, where else this, this word, or firstborn, what might be found in your Greek text? Amen. Man, brothers are on it. I love it. You guys are on it here. I'm actually going to go here. I'm going to read this for you. Romans 9, or Romans 8.29. It says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so what you see is that we just saw the, the, the son's relationship with creation or with, uh, with the father. And now you're seeing um, the son's relationship with the redeemed in this passage right in this particular passage in romans eight twenty nine, the son's privileged to hold a preeminent position of the firstborn as the heir and sovereign lord of creation and we'll definitely get more into this as we as we keep going and so he's the firstborn not only of redemption this is what we saw in in verses 13 and 14 of of colossians let me get back to my text here we saw this in Colossians 13, that we have redemption in Christ, but he is the firstborn, not just of redemption, but of all creation. And so he's just not the eternal or, or beginning, but the beginner of all things, is what this text is saying. What this text is getting to, you see that in John 1, 1 through 5, and this is his relationship between these these two aspects, what these two words mean, and they're both titles of Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation in the image of the invisible God. 
And beginning with verse 16, and let me know, actually, brother, I'm not gonna, I'm not keeping track of that. I, you just, you just have to stop me. I know me, I just won't do that. Um, but, uh, anybody have any questions? Mm. Amen. Yeah. Right. Right. No, amen. Um, so the firstborn, um, what we see in Scripture is that Christ is the beginning of all things. And in the in the economy of salvation, Christ has first place to the Father. This, the, he sends His Son, He exalts His Son, and glorifies His Son. And so we're talking about uh, a, a, a position of sonship is what we're talking about when we speak about the firstborn. For by him all things were made, and for him all things were made. So he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, as we see in Scripture. And um, and so we can definitely see all these things that he was not created, but um, that that all things were made through him. And so, and he is, uh, as we see just in, in the totality of Scripture, comprehensively, what we do see is that in the beginning he was with God and, and he was God. And so uh, putting all of those things together, because, of course, anyone can take a, a, a word, right? Any, any one of your Jehovah's Witness friends or a Muslims, uh, you know, in Islam or whatever it might be, in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they can take one word. But uh, I, think it's, I think it's key just to understand, have a good understanding of where these words are used and how they're used in context. And, uh, and that's gonna be the best way to, so you just have to know, you have to know scripture and, and know what these things mean. Uh, and, 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 and this is what I believe that this text actually, uh, makes those things known. Because not, yeah, brother. Right. In the Old Testament, you have instances where the firstborn was not the one born first in sequence, but given first uh, or preeminence because they're considered the firstborn. Like God put Jacob ahead of Jacob Jacob. Jacob. Where's that? So that's this that passage seen in, in Genesis forty one fifty one? Is that the verse? The chapter I remember. Is that Jer- oh yeah that, that's right okay and then it, then and then it's also spoken of in Jeremiah yes Jeremiah thirty one verse nine amen then God called Ephraim his firstborn when literally in sequence Manasseh was born first amen amen yeah that's 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 a good text that's where we see that in in the scripture um amen. Um, this is, I, 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 I like this, this, this Christological passage. So what you do move into is right from verse, fif- right from verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Your Bible will probably say for, um, something of that sort, um, and, or something like that. Uh, the Greek word is hati. And this is a causal conjunction, literally meaning because, or since. 
And uh, from 15 to 16, you might have a period. That's okay. That, trans- that we're trying to translate these in English sentences that make sense. And so in the Greek, there is no period here. So what you can see is in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, uh, firstborn of all creation, um, because. Literally, it says, because in him were created all things. That's what the Greek says. Because in him were created all things. And so this is the reason for the exaltation of the supremely preeminent image bearer of God. Because in him were created all things. This is what we see. This is what, basically, you can say this is what it means when he says that um, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Because... Um, because from him, because in him were created all things. And he defines all things in this way. Right? We see this in, in 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, the visible and invisible, so the things which we can see and the things we cannot see. And not just that, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so we see every realm of existence is King Jesus Christ. Every host in heaven, every creature on earth, everything was made for him and uh, by him. And that is what we see. And so you, you can see, so we went from this shift, right? From thanking the Father to exalting the Son. And you really, in this text, you can just marvel at the preeminence of the Son and the Christology of Paul. You can look and you can see his equality with the Father in these texts. And so just from thinking to God and we are, he brought us out of this kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And we see this shift going on. And not only we're seeing the redeeming power of the son, but the creating power of the son. And he keeps going and we'll develop this, uh, this little idea further. And so what you, what you should get from this passage of, of, of speaking of the Father and the Son in the same context, you should understand in the, in the Christology of Paul is that what is being magnified is that nothing exists outside of the Father and nothing exists outside of the Son. That's what, that's what you should understand. This is the preeminence of Paul's theology. We may not get that right, right on the surface, um, but this is what was being preached to them. In these times, this is not something that was later developed, right? But this is something that Paul was preaching and teaching in the churches. The preeminence of the Son. This is what people were looking up to and worshiping and glorifying is the equality of the Son with the Father. And so we see that through him and for him, that the, that the Son is the divine agent of creation. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says something very similar to this. And I can turn here. It says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things exist, and we exist through him. And so every created thing exists to the praise of its maker. It is made to serve him, to point to him, and thus you'll notice that Christ's glory, right? His goal is his own glory. And his praise, as Revelation 5.13 says, is to be forever and ever, that the Father and the Lamb are to be glorified together. Which brings us to verse 17. Get back here to my text. I need to put my finger on this text. So we see that 
All things belong to him, made for him and through him. And he is the in he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's basically reemphasizing what he's previously said. But you will notice this in verse 17. He is before all things. He doesn't say he was before all things. Right? But he is before all things. That's an interesting way to put it, to put it right. He is before all things. Speaking about the eternality of the Son and his, and his position of supremacy in creation and as the creator. And so since Christ is not just the beginning, but the beginner of things, he exists perfectly independent of all things. And that is what this verse is getting at in the latter half. And in him, all things hold together. Uh, all, all things are not holding Jesus, Jesus Christ together, right? And so uh, we obviously, if all things hold together in him, he cannot be a created thing, right? He cannot be a created thing. Because then he would be dependent on something. But what this verse is saying is he is dependent on absolutely nothing. But every second of every day depends on the sun. Every second of every day is kept by the sun and sustained by him. And uh, I put here, just it's because of the sustaining hand of Christ that this, that this fallen world doesn't just disintegrate. And the world of sinners that live here aren't unleashed to deeper degrees of depravity. It is the, the, the sovereign hand, the common grace of God who is sustaining and upholding all things. And that is the reason we don't see things as worse or as bad as they could be. Maybe as bad as they should be, as wicked as we are. And so we should thank him for his common grace that God sustains all things, that he holds all things together. Thank God that he holds all things together and, uh, and, and holds back the evil, especially in our cities and in our churches. And so we are happy that God is in control and that he's sovereign. This leads us to verse 18. Anybody have any questions about that? We're okay, brother? I think to, to underscore what you just mentioned in Genesis 20, uh, there's an incident where Abimelech is going to sin against God, but he stops him. Oh, right. Amen. Amen. That is a good example. So, getting into verse 18, he goes on and he says this. So not only is he before all things, and in all things hold together in him, but he is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so this is what we mentioned in the first two verses, right? This speaks of the son's relationship to original creation. And then we have here just following and striking similarity. What you see in 15 and 17 is almost a, uh, is almost a, a direct echo, um, of what you see in verses 18 through 20. So he's speaking of creation in the first half, right? 15 to 17, 18 to 20, he's speaking of the new creation. What he is now doing, right? What he is now doing, not just before the foundations of the world, beginning with creation, but now he is saying that he is the beginning of the church. He is the head of the body. And that is what we see in Scripture. And you will see this, that if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, I've got you guys going a lot of places. This is good, nice and healthy for us. 1 Corinthians 12 And if I'm going too fast, just let me know. 
1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read starting in, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. It says, For even as the body is one, and yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, or and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Right? The body is many members. We understand that. We are many members of the body. You are not the body. So if someone tells you, are you not the church? Well, I am a member of the church, right? We are members of the body of Christ. That's the biblical answer, and that's what we see in Scripture. And so, for the body is not one member, but many members. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, any, any, any the less, uh, it is not for this reason, any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an, in, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And uh, skip down to verse 27. He says this, Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And that's what we see. So we will see that many people, we have some eyes, some ears, some nose, as I just said, a hand, a foot. Uh, but nobody is the head, right? Who's the head? Christ. Christ. Amen. That's encouraging to hear. Amen. Christ is the head. So all of the members find life and abundant grace by means of Christ, who is the head of the body, right? And can you be a Christian and be not not connected to the head and be not connected to Christ? You can't. You cannot be a Christian and not be connected to Christ. And in fact, one of the one of the things that were were happening, if you go to Colossians, if you go back to Colossians two with me, what you see is what what Paul is condemning about those who are disturbing the church. In two nineteen, one of his accusations were they were not holding fast to the head. And then credible, they were not holding fast to the head. And then he defines, well, what is the purpose of the head? What is, where is the vitality of the strength of the body found? He says, from the, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grow with a growth which is from God. But that was one of the accusations is that they were not holding fast to the head. And so to have Christ as your head is to be a part of his body. And if you are not presently and preservingly holding fast, as he says, they are not holding fast, then of course you are not of Christ's. And you're not of God's. And so this is what we do see in this passage. In verse 18, he is the, he is, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's very interesting how he, how he explains this because it, it seems just kind of just by reading it, you're wondering, what does he mean he's the firstborn from the dead? Or what does it mean that he's the beginning? Didn't he just say he was the beginning? And this is what we see, that for by him all things were created in verse 16, right? He is the firstborn of creation, and now he's going down, and he's saying that, um, 
in verse uh, whatever, verse 18, that he is the firstborn from the dead. It's very interesting how he says these things. And so uh, how I how I take this and come to understand what this means is that he is ahead, not of the original creation of the original beginning, but he is the head of a new beginning of all the redeemed people of God. So just as we saw that he was the firstborn of original creation, he is now the firstborn of the new creation by virtue of his resurrection, by virtue of his being brought back from the dead. And this is what you see here. You see in the text... This Hina clause, and this is this is a word. It means that he is the firstborn from the dead. So that in the Greek, that's a Hina. That's a uh, the the word is Hina, and it's a purpose clause. That means so that. Um, but you need to understand that it expresses purpose. So just as just as verse sixteen gave us the the Hati, right? For by him, for by him, all things were created. Or it says that the firstborn of all creation, because through him all things were created. So just in the same way that we, it was exalting the, the works of the Son in original creation, so now Paul is using the word Hina to define the purpose of being the firstborn from the dead, of being the head of our redemption in Christ. And this is what you see, that Christ is the firstborn. He is the exalted Messiah and Redeemer of his people who has first place. Uh, among many brethren, that's what we just, that's what we were just reading in Romans 8.29. And you also see this in Philippians, if you just turn, if you just go, I believe just one, one book west in your Bible. One book west. This helps me with my cardinal directions. I, I, I use it. I'm not very good on the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, amen. So this is uh, just a fascinating text that that you see that Christ is the firstborn and he has the privileged position among many brethren because of the work that he's done for us. And we see this being used here, Philippians 2:6. It says, speaking of Jesus Christ, who Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning a thing that he could hold on to if he was going to be incarnate. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to point of death, even death on a cross, right? And so he is the firstborn of many brethren, it says, by by virtue of his redeeming work as the Messiah, as the Son, who who is God incarnate. And it says that he is now the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. And go back to this last page here. So the firstborn from the dead, and then this is the Hena clause that I was telling you about, so that he himself will will come to have first place in everything. And so what we just read in Philippians 2, right, 6 through 9, right, that God had highly exalted him because of his humiliation to come down and to give his life a ransom for many and it says that for this reason also, for this reason, that he might be the first firstborn among many brethren, right? So that he would come to have first place in everything. 
And this is what this is, this is speaking of. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we're talking about here in this passage that he is the beginning from the firstborn so that he can be exalted by the Father and have first place in everything, the name which is above every name. Any questions? Amen. 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 The new creation. Christ is the head of the new creation as he was the original creation. Incredible. This is all, this is what's wrapped up in Paul's thoughts here in Colossians. Incredible. What a high Christology he has. What high thoughts of God that he was, that were being revealed to him. Truly just remarkable. You know, we miss it. We're just kind of like, yeah, it's just, it seems kind of vague, but until the spirit helps you uh, understand some of these things and illumines truth and, and knowledge just by uh, understanding what he says about these things and throughout the whole of God's word, it really is remarkable. Being in prison? Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, amen. From a prison fighting heresy. Isn't that incredible? And it makes me think of the position prior to the conversion being a Pharisee. Mm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's truly incredible. He was confronted with the living Christ. You remember what it says in Acts 9? Uh, I can just go there. But um, I think Cecilia and I were just uh, admiring this text the other day. But it says this. It says 9 verse 1. You can see how we can see just where Paul is just... He's being radically changed. Um, and uh, he's in God, in his sovereignty, because he's God, just comes and changes him. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so you see Saul, right? He's uh, he's uh, a Pharisee, right? Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees is what the text says. And uh, like like brother uh, Best just said that um, that he was he was. In, he was in he was in his old life he had this old theology and just Christ comes in the front door and kicks it down and he meets the living Christ why are you persecuting me and then he receives this revelation he receive he receives a new life 
and that's where you begin to see his theology taking place. And it, and he begins, and he begins with, I believe it's the next, next verse, and he says, Who are you, Lord? That's what happens when Christ, when Christ comes to him. He responds with calling him Lord. Yeah, amen. Amen. Really is wonderful to seeing this change. And so the person who knocked Paul off his horse in glory, um, this is who Paul is explaining in Colossians. This is the high Christology of Paul. It truly is remarkable. And uh, I think we're doing okay. We have a 10 minutes or so. Oh, wonderful. That's good. Okay, so verse verse 19. We go on and it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And I believe this is speaking about the plan of the Father for all the fullness to dwell in him. It's not that the Father... Um, is putting something in Christ or anything like that or making him what he wasn't, but Christ was assuming, right? He was a, he was assuming, um, flesh. Um, and he put on flesh. And it is by the Father's good pleasure or you could say that the Father, uh, the, of the Father's choosing is another way you could, un- you can understand these words. Though his, by his plan, he was pleased that his son should go. And what this is speaking about is the incarnation. Uh, that's what it's speaking about. For all the fullness to dwell in him. And so this word fullness, um, the fullness, what, what we, what we do get is this. Um, though this verse right here, the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, it seems kind of, it's kind of hard to define exactly what he might mean, but it seems like he expands on that a little later in the next chapter. You go to Colossians 2, 9, and he basically says the same thing. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Right? So this word deity, so we kind of use this word. It's basically, it's Paul, it's Paul using the same word. And we want to say, okay, throughout the text, where does Paul use this word? How does he use this word? And uh, directly following, in the same letter, he uses the same word speaking about the divinity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Colossians 2.9 For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so the word theotikos, this is the, this is that word for, uh, the, the deity, right? The divinity, the nature of God. And, um, this word is somatikos. Somatikos is the word that is in bodily form, the bodily or speaking to the incarnation itself for God to dwell in human flesh is what we're talking about. So it seems to be speaking of a divine incarnation of Christ. That's what this, that's what this verse, you could really summarize it as. The incarnation was the means used to procure redemption and to seal our reconciliation. Not just our reconciliation, but the reconciliation of all things. And so, and, 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 and it is key here where it says in verse 19 that for it was the Father's pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And what He's speaking about and what we have to be clear is that, that God inhabits the cosmos, right? He inhabits everything. And so what He is speaking about in here, uh, when it comes when it's speaking about dwelling, he, this, the focus is on Jesus Christ and the fullness of deity dwelling in Him, the divine incarnation of the Son. There's a little hymn um, that I really like. It's called "Let Earth and Heaven Combine" by Charles Wesley, and it starts like this: "Let Earth and Heaven combine, 
Angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span and comprehensively made man. Which is really incredible. And it really just kind of, it, it, it kind of defines what we're talking about. That God who is incomprehensible was made man. The, the incarnation. Um, so divine and so expansive and the, it's really, the, to understand it is beyond us and, um, and we only have what the Spirit allows us to understand and know and, and, uh, as, really as close as we can come to understand, uh, these divine things. And, um, actually we're getting to the last verse, so this is good here. Getting in, so it was, a, it was, for it was, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this is the Father's plan to reconcile all things to Himself through His Son. Jesus is the great mediator of reconciliation. He stands in the gap between finite creation and their immortal God. And so in his humanity, um, though he died, he didn't just die, but he effected peace. This is what this verse is saying. He effected peace, and through the satisfaction of the Father's wrath and the death of his Son, we have reconciling peace with God. And you can expound on that a little more, that how did we have peace? One of the things that the Colossians were um, um, worried about, you could say, is that the authorities of Satan, the authorities of of the men who were uh, persecuting them, the rulers, and you know, all these all these things that are really flesh and blood, and not only that, but but the principalities, the prince of air, as Ephesians two says. What they were fearful of is that they would be overtaken and overcome by these. And so, but what Jesus Christ, he goes on to say that everything is, uh, everything is mine. I created all things for all things. Uh, all things were made for me and by me, even the powers and everything around you. And so he is sending them encouragement and comforting them that although these authorities and powers and these things might be overcoming to you, I've overcome the greater authority and the greater power. And this is what he says right here in Colossians 2. 13 through 15, brothers and sisters, I'll read it for you. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them, over them through him. And that's what we see, that Christ has overcome these things, satisfying the wrath, the wrath of God and in his own cross. And we have been given this reconciling peace and have peace with God. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ. And so, amen. Amen, brothers and sisters. Uh, we are finished here. The session is dismissed. I appreciate your time.